Manhattan, Kansas. Population, 56,000. Home to Kansas State University and the nearby Fort Riley military base. For many people, a community nothing short of paradise on the prairie. The quaint small town feel offers many of the amenities of a larger city just minutes from your driveway. Residents are treated to sporting events, country music, a lake, hiking trails, and some of the best eateries the Midwest has to offer. When you couple the luxuries of the town with the friendliness of its people, one might begin to wonder if any issues even exist in a community which seems so pure. But there are issues. Tough ones and messy ones, and ones that if you're not looking or talking to the right people, you will never see. But we have. We are the Healthy Communities Lab. Nestled in the confines of K-State's Department of Kinesiology, our mission is to create cultures of health through digital media and create spaces for tough conversations on issues in the community. We observe, listen, and reflect back to the community what we hear. We do this to stimulate conversation and make progress towards creating a culture of health. Recently, we have been observing a rather prevalent and long-standing issue in our community. A lack of quality, affordable housing. Now, we know what you might be thinking. Guys, houses are expensive. Apartments are expensive. Is it really a problem? We're going to let you be the judge. Over the last six months, we have invited numerous community members into our lab to have a nice long conversation about the issue at hand and factors which might be leading to this remarkable phenomenon. But it's important to remember we are still gathering the facts and learning new information each and every day. We don't have all the answers, and we might not ever. So if you're not too scared, you can sit back and plug in your headphones, work out, drive to work, go for a walk, clean the house, or do some gardening. You'll hear from your fellow community members on what their observations and interpretations of what's going on with affordable housing. We will publish a new podcast every week to give you a different perspective and a way for you to learn about what's really happening in your community. Keep following this story by listening to this podcast and by visiting our website. That's www.healthycommunitieslab.com. Enjoy the show. My name's Debbie Ness. I have been a resident of Manhattan since 1987, uh, but actually I lived here before because um, I got my undergraduate and graduate degrees here, and then my husband also got his undergraduate master's and DVM here. So um, we were familiar with Manhattan, and um, then when my husband went off to get his PhD at the University of California, Davis, when he was done there, there was an opportunity to come back here so he could be on faculty, so that's what brought us back to Manhattan. Um, I'm also, though, um, born and raised in Kansas, born in Great Bend, lived in Hutchinson, and uh, so Kansas, and, and like the wide open spaces, mm. have lived in Virginia, too many trees, lived in Florida, too many trees. I need to be able to see the, see the horizon, I've discovered. During my time here, I have had the good fortune of primarily working in organizations that are 501c3s, so nonprofit organizations, and a variety of different ones. My first position with a 501c3 was at the university, and I worked in the intellectual property office, mm -hmm. which learned about patenting and licensing, which was very enlightening. But the other half of that job actually was tied to economic development. It was the first attempt to have an entrepreneurial center here at the university that was funded by the university and the city and the county and the chamber. And so we tried to spin off businesses 
from the university's research um, out into the community. And that's really how I started to learn about the community from the standpoint of going to city commission meetings, county commission meetings, was involved with chamber type of things. And really, uh, that was my first taste of learning about the things that were going on in the community. But at some point, the university grind and the politics of the university weren't to my liking, so then I moved out into the public sector and have been involved in a variety of nonprofits. Uh, I worked at Pawnee Mental Health Services for a while as their grant administrator, have been involved in two startup nonprofits, one that was called the Community Health Council, that was looking to make sure that we weren't duplicating resources in the community. And actually, before our time, we tried to get the hospital and the various health agencies to look at shared electronic medical records. I mean, this was back in the... 90s, basically. Wow. So people here had that vision at that point. Mm -hmm. Another startup was called CORE, the Community Online Resource Exchange. And this was an early attempt to provide an online resource directory of services in the community that make up our social services safety net. And that was about the same time. It was right when the kind of internet was coming in, into being. Mm. But because we had some vision and others didn't understand it, it didn't go very far. That was also, though, we scored a pretty big political coup at the time. The city had economic development fund money, and we argued that in order for people to be employable and get jobs, that they needed access to computers. So we applied for economic development fund money, and that money is what created the existing computer lab at the library. Oh. But it was very it was very <laughs> it was very controversial at the time um, because it was a non-traditional way of looking at economic development because you know the chamber's way was to recruit businesses here and give them incentives. And we were saying, well, but they need employees and those employees need to be able to develop resumes and they need to be able to do all those things. So um, it passed, but it was it was one of the more interesting um, experiences in terms of interacting with city government at the time. Yeah, I mean that act, the sort of structure of that story strikes me as one that gets repeated quite a bit, right? Like you, it's uh, sort of supply side versus demand side, right? Sure. Economics, right? Do sure. you give it? Do you give economic development money to you know the the, the business? decision makers or, you know, investors, whatever you want to call them, or do you give it to, you know, uh, the lower middle in class, uh, middle income class people who are, you know, trying to find jobs? Well, and, and at that time, too, the focus was not so much on good paying jobs, it was just jobs. I mean, that's how, it was, it was actually, I can't even remember if it was a quarter cent or a half cent sales tax. And the first thing they actually funded was a call center that came in here that were low paying jobs, basically. But again, it was kind of back to that, you know, well, this is a job creation. But again, if people don't have well, for example, the call center. The call center was uh, computer-based, you know, to do troubleshooting for computers. And if you're people didn't know how to use computers here, then how are they going to apply, apply for those jobs, basically? And right. then, like I said, resume development and all those type of things. So, um, like I said, it was, it was an interesting process because um, of the, the support we had in the community was pretty strong, but it, it challenged kind of that traditional way of thinking about economic development. And even today, you know, there's still that 
conversation in the community about what constitutes economic development? Is, that, is it that recruiting businesses to come here, or is economic development having a good transportation system, good schools, good mm -hmm. parks? You know, how do you define that? Right. And my view has always been that community development should guide economic development, so that if you invest in your community, people will want to come here, businesses will want to come here. Because if you give them incentives, they're only here long enough to use up the incentive, and then they're moving on to someplace else that's going to give them better incentives. Right. And what do you, what kind of um, resistance or opposing arguments do you hear um, when you say something like that? Well, that the only way to get businesses to come here is to give them incentives. Right. Okay. Bri so, bribe so that's a dead-end conversation. <laughs> bribe them, basically, is, is, is my word for it. So, you know, actually then over the years, though, then the focus went, okay, if you're going to recruit businesses to come here, let's just ensure that, that they're good-paying jobs then. That's when I became involved with the Living Wage Coalition. And we, at that time, were trying to encourage the city commission to just enact an ordinance to ensure that the companies that got public funds paid a living wage mm. to their employees. I actually served on two Chamber of Commerce task forces that um, looked at that issue, and they could never go so far as to support an ordinance. But the discussion, though, caused them to make sure that that was a criteria because they didn't want members of the public who supported the living wage piece to make a fuss when it came time for the city commission to approve those applications. So while it wasn't an ordinance, it still was an effective effort because it raised awareness about the issue of low wages in mm -hmm. the community. Mm -hmm. So it did help. So what do you, um, this, is, this is sort of an interesting way to come in to the topic that we're going to be mm -hmm. talking about today, and I'd like to get there in just a second, but, you know, this, this whole idea of economic development or even the economic climate, you know, that, that we have here right now is an, is an interesting one. How would you sort of describe the economic climate here in town, sort of given your experience with the economic development uh, you know, work you've done in the past? Probably not too much different than it's been for the past 25 years. There's just this divide between the haves and the have-nots in the community. There are people because they're associated with the university or even Fort Riley to some extent, and then some certain businesses that people are doing okay. They're, you know, but then there's the other segment of the community that's not doing okay. And we're a very service-oriented community here. And so those service-oriented jobs don't pay well. But then you also tie that to the fact that so much of the property here is not on the tax rolls, university, school district, so that that then puts pressure on property owners to fund government, basically. So so some people argue that property taxes are high here. I don't necessarily agree with that. Of course, I'm one of those, I don't mind paying taxes as long as it's providing for the things that a community should be providing for its citizens. Mm -hmm. But but that is the argument, basically. And, you know, that whole dynamic in terms of wages and cost of living here, it's always been here. It hasn't changed too much. But I do think maybe it's gotten worse. University employees haven't seen wage increases for a long time, but yet cost of living continues to go up here. So same with school district employees. They're pressed. So while we see a lot of growth here, growth in terms of new businesses, but I look at those new businesses, they're mostly national chains that are coming in. They're not businesses that produce a product that you export then that kind of 
brings new dollars into the community. My sense is that we're doing okay, but we could be doing better, I guess. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that you just mentioned was uh, you're okay with, you know, being taxed as long as you're getting a good return, mm -hmm. you know, on that investment, I guess you could say. Right. Do you feel that we've been getting a good return on our taxes in Manhattan? I do. Do I agree with every decision that's made? No. But by and large, I do think we do pretty well, and I, I think that's for two reasons. I think we're fortunate here because we do have like city employees, um, county employees, that they live here and they want the community to reflect them in terms of their professionalism. Mm -hmm. And so we get a pretty good bang for our buck with the kind of work that they do from that standpoint. And then I just also think that we have city managers and, and other people, and then we've had elected officials that manage the funds pretty well. Like I said, I don't always agree with everything they do, but you know we have a strong law enforcement here in the community, which is a big portion of the budget. You know, I never worry about EMS, fire service, police. Our parks are good. Mm. People want more in them sometimes or more parks, but they're good. You know, the big thing people complain about all the times is potholes in the streets, but community just passed a sales tax to address that. Mm. Now, I say that, and I'm always concerned about sales tax because of its regressive nature and mm -hmm. how that impacts low-income people. But in this community, because we have so many people come in from out of town to attend sporting events, we generate quite a bit of sales tax that can go to take care of those things. So that one I struggle with, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. If the state would just get its act together and remove the sales tax on food, then it wouldn't bother me so much. But we keep paying sales tax on food, and, right. and that's hard. And this community, for the most part, has always supported bond elections when it comes to improving the schools. And um, so there's a high value put on education in our schools. You have staff there that take pride in their work, and so they that's reflected, I think, in how, how well we take care of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, and, and that's, you know, I have this uh, very similar impression of, of the community as well in that it seems to me to be a very sort of healthy uh, community in, in a lot of ways and yet as you mentioned there's really sort of a a, a big gap right there's the have and the, and the have nots and maybe that's you know due to something that's going on at the city level or or to other things so how how do you sort of explain uh, or or see that gap and and why it exists explaining it is difficult because like as long as I've lived here it's been here um, and in terms of why it's here you know when, when you talk to people who in this community who live in poverty so many of them are transplants from other places oftentimes it might be they came here because of they were assigned here to Fort Riley, and then perhaps a marriage fell apart, and so there's a young woman with children here that's kind of gotten trapped mm. for the most part. Or, quite honestly, students that come to school here and then like it here and then find they can't find a good-paying job and kind of get trapped, basically, here. But then, there, you know, there are a lot of what I consider townies that were born here and stayed here and maybe aren't doing well either. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I really, I don't know. I, I can't answer that. I just know that as long as I've lived here, the percentage of people here that live in poverty still hovers around that 20 to 25 percent, and it stays pretty much the same. 
which, you know, now as our population grows, that percentage stays the same, but the actual number of people then is, is increasing. And to me, that's just an additional stress here that we don't get our arms around it a little bit better than we have in the past. I think we are going to suffer more as a community. Yeah, that'd be something that, that I'd be really interested in focusing on is like, what are the forces that are, you know, keeping that, that number essentially constant uh, and, and over like time? Like I said, it, it's 20... 20, you know, just, yeah. Does right that include there. students? In the past, it did not because of the way the census counted students. I'm trying to think of which year that changed, but it does now. And so it actually kind of bumped up a little bit, I think, as a result of that. I'm, it's been about 10, 15 years ago that they changed that. Right. Because it used to be students were counted where they, th their home residence, basically. And then they started counting them where when they, they actually reside at the time. Yeah. Know? So this is kind of a really interesting, and this might be a sort of a good way to get into this conversation of housing, too. There seems to be the idea that when you go to college, like, you're supposed to be poor, Right. Um, yeah. has, has kind of been, well, first of all, are you aware of sort of this phenomenon, like, you know, the, co the poor college student? I am. Like, I am. It's just part of the experience. It's, yeah, it's essentially been uh, normalized. Do you want to comment on that? Uh, I mean, do you, and the reason I ask is because it seems to me that, you know, at least one sort of perspective on that is, well, everybody has to pay their dues, right? Like you go to college, you're supposed to be poor. You're not actually generating uh, any money. You're not working technically, although you could if you, you know, got a part-time job or even a full-time job um, on top of however many credits uh, you're taking. But the idea that, um, that, you're, that when you go to college, you can just expect to be poor and, and we all sort of accept that for one reason being, you know, that, you know, you have to, pay your dues, whatever that means. And I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. Like, I'm not sure, and I'm not even sure that, you know, it's the, the college experience is viewed the same way, like in other towns or in other countries. Like, I'm not sure where this, where this, come, where this comes from. So I kind of wanted to hover on that point for just a second, if you have any thoughts on it. I think that this is that attitude. I think it's still there, but I also think that, I mean, I look at it in terms of, again, you know, and again, I'm going to date myself age-wise here, but, you know, when I was in college in the 70s, um, I look at what the cost was to go to college then, and I worked a part-time job all through college, and and didn't take out any loans, didn't have any help from my parents, and was able to do it. My husband, we took out loans for veterinary school, but, you know, the interest rate was 2% or yeah. some ridiculous <laughs> amount. Then as a society, we came more, became more materialistic then. You know, and you look at college students today, I drove a used car. We were poor college students, but I don't think we knew we were poor. Mm. And, and the point was, we were going to college. That was our job at that point. Now, I think the college experience is just such a different different beast. Their expectations in terms of a student's standard of living and quality of life during that experience is so much different. I mean, you look at look at the dorms now, how nice they are compared to what they were, you know, they were barracks when I lived, went here. So poor college student, uh, yeah, there are some and they're struggling, but then we're also, you know, they're also leaving college they're going to be poor because the amount of debt they carry. And we've done that to them. I mean, we really have. We've done that to them. Because because state legislatures have not been willing to invest in higher education, and it's forced the universities then to become more businesslike and mm -hmm. 
pass those costs off onto the consumers, basically. Mm-hmm. I don't envy any of you in higher education anymore, truthfully. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why you do it, truthfully. I mean, I know That's why. the same question. Uh, I mean, I know why. I do think higher education is a noble institution, and don't get me wrong, but it's so different now than it was before. And you're not going to get rich being in higher education. No. So, so, let's, so let's kind of move over to this conversation, this idea of uh, quality affordable housing. Um, and, and students are really one of the hardest hit uh, populations by this issue. And if I can just take a second to kind of frame it a, a little bit, you know, if you look at the, the best data that we have on, on housing in Riley County, some 54% of, of renters are cost burdened, meaning they spend more than 30% of their income on housing. And, and 30% is really sort of the standard that we use to figure out, um, sort of, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're aware of this, but for the audience, the 30% is kind of the standard for, you know, how affordable is, is housing, right? And it takes into account how much you make and, and how much, you know, what the, what the price point of, of housing is. Um, and um, uh, some, what is it, like 80, over 80% of people who are poor, people who make less than uh, $15,000 a year, which there are um, many uh, in Manhattan, um, the proportion of cost burden people in that group is, um, yeah, it's like, it's like 80%. If you make less than $15,000, you're, you're probably, you're probably among, you know, that 80% of people who is cost burden. And there's even 27% of people who rent, who are severely cost burden, meaning that they spend over 50% of their income on housing. Um, and that's the, you know the cost of housing is is seems to be a big issue around here, and it's and it seems to have been an issue for a long time. You know, as I go around and talk to different uh, you know different people around here, um, that is that is different, but related to sort of a, a, a second issue, which is the quality of housing. Um, and this might be something that, that is you know more. Uh, uh, experienced by college students than than other groups but uh, you know if you talk to um, different housing organizations around town uh, for example the office of off-campus housing support at k-state you know they it's their job to you know help students through the you know the off-campus living experience right like what do you look for in a house? What are your rights as a renter? Or, you know, taking care of disputes between landlords and tenants. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lawyer that works in that office if it gets to that point. Settling disputes between roommates and things like this. And so I talked to, we actually had Jack McHugh, who's the director of that office in here, and he can just go, you know, story after story after story of of students who have had bad experiences with their, you know, in their, in their uh, off-campus, mm-hmm. you know, housing. But a lot of those are, are quality related, right? Like the quality of the housing, you know, so how, uh, you know, properties that aren't meeting code requirements, you know, like bad insulation, the landlord won't fix, you know, certain things and, and things like this. And so, 
Um, and you can also look at, there is actually some data on this from the census that looks at, you know, uh, overcrowding, which there is some evidence for here as well, probably among the, uh, the college students largely, but also uh, for low income uh, people. So we also talked to uh, Stan, is that his name? Stan Ward. Stan Ward from the school district. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, he doesn't have, uh, it, I don't think he had the hard data on it, uh, it right in front of him, but he said somewhere around 300 uh, kids in the school system are would qualify as, as homeless, uh, meaning that, you know, they don't have a home of their own. They might right. be couch surfing and, and this kind of thing. And so, um, you know, so, so, there, so there's at least a few different, you know, groups of people who are impacted by either the cost or the, and or the quality of, of housing around here. And so, so I'd kind of like to get into to this, to this issue um, and maybe first just start by asking you, you know, what your, what your understanding of this issue is and, you know, your, your experience with it over, you know, the years that you've sure, been here. Sure. It's always been a supply and demand issue, quite honestly. You know, anybody that's lived in Manhattan in a significant period of time can tell you that in terms of the um, amount of housing that's available at any one time, because we are so constrained geographically about where things can be built, sometimes development has been slow to happen, basically. You know, it really, there was probably pressure um, and, and limited a, a limit on housing until the whole area in the Northwest, the Grand Mirror area, finally opened up and, and more development happened there. Because, you know, you can't, you can't develop to the east because of the river. You can't go south because of the river along there. And then the university, the university population increased. Um, they didn't keep up with providing on-campus housing. So it was really then left to developers and landlords to provide that. And for, for quite a while, they had what I would consider a pretty sweet deal in terms of being able to determine the quality and cost of the rental housing that was available in the community. And then also that impacted just the, the quality and the cost of owner-occupied housing, too, from, from that standpoint. Housing costs are high here. They're higher than the average for the state by, you know, considerable amount of money. I mean, the last numbers I looked at, state average is about $129,000 for a house, and here it's about $175,000. But then you get into the whole, you know, issue of quality, and landlords have just always been able to set the price they wanted to set and not worry about they whether or not they maintained it because there was always somebody that wanted to rent it between university students and military, university people. They just didn't have to worry about it. And then there was also that period of time where parents were buying houses for their students to live in while they were here. And then once those students left, they kind of became absentee landlords mm -hmm. and still rented the properties. But didn't take care of them because they weren't they weren't here. It didn't matter to them, and I think you see that a lot in the older neighborhoods around the university. You know, at any one time, if you go block by block and look to see who owns the various properties, by and large, they're out of town owners that don't care basically. Mm -hmm. And then I think with students um, and and parents, when when parents bring their kids here, I think they have an expectation that the housing that is available to their 
child is going to be okay. And it's not until that student lives in it for a while and figures out that it's not, and then they don't know what to do. And whose responsibility is it to educate the students about that? And that's always been a circular argument in this community. And most recently evidenced by the conversation about just that rental registration program that they passed. So I don't know. It has always bothered me, I guess, that we weren't willing to put a little more pressure on landlords to maintain, well, it has, to maintain their properties. And then it also teaches students that they don't have to take care of something. Right. You know, so it's a culture, I think, that we create that is harmful from that standpoint. Um, and then the other thing that happens, too, as we're seeing now, we have then outside developers that are coming in. They see a market here because we have... The, the affordable housing that we have is substandard, basically, and so students don't want to rent that or families don't want to live in those places. So now we see these big multi-story apartment complexes going up and they're knocking down what could be good housing stock if somebody would go in and, and rehabilitate it and fix it up. But instead, they're just raising it and putting up you know, multi-story apartment buildings or building big apartment complexes on the outskirts of town to try and capture some of that and um, that kind of sprawl and that kind of infill, I think, are dangerous to our sense of neighborhoods in this community, too. I think mm-hmm. we, we lose that sense of neighborhood feeling and, and um, sense of community, and I think that's harmful. So I understand it's a really challenging issue, um, but what is the alternative to you know, the sprawl, right? Like. Um, like this is, I mean, this is a problem in this town and, and a lot of others across the country, right? Um, you know, urban, urban sprawl, gentrification, I don't know if the, how, to what extent that's actually going on here, but like what is, what is the alternative? Well, you know, we've had discussions in this community over the years about trying to do things that um, address density issues, um, or that if we redevelop an area, um, that we we look at things about you know mixed use, that it's a combination of housing and retail and you know those type of things. And we have this tendency to talk a good talk about it, but then when it comes time to execute, the economics of it don't allow it to happen to some extent. So you get developers that'll come in and and say, well, we'd like to do that for you, but in order to make this work, we have to do this instead. Perfect example of that is the North End development, the area really north of Leavenworth to Bluemont between 3rd and 4th Street, or between 4th Street and um, Tuttle Creek Boulevard. Mm-hmm. There was a beautiful plan for that area that um, was a very walkable, um, supposed to be a small shops, restaurants, we got big box stores, basically. Yeah, went went a completely different direction. South and development, the same thing. We have hotels and the Discovery Center. That was supposed to be an arts and entertainment district. I guess if people find hotels entertaining, that's... And the Discovery Center, that was just the hook to get the money from the state, basically, to develop it. But none of the rest of it was what was first envisioned for there. Right. We tend, to, in this community, to not have the political will to 
hold people's feet to the fire in terms of meeting their commitments. We seem to roll over, I think, too okay. quickly. What do you mean by that? We had a plan for both those developments. Developer comes in and says, oh, you know, we're interested in doing this for you. And you say, okay, here's our plan. This is what we want you to do. And then through a process of negotiations, suddenly, because we want something, because we're not patient, I think, sometimes, we want this to happen now instead of waiting for the right developer to come along. For example, the South End development in particular, why didn't we wait a few years to see if there was a developer that was willing to come? Or, or why didn't we try and get, I mean, the, like for example, the movie theater being attached to Manhattan Town Center now. Why couldn't we have done something like Old Town in Wichita? I mean, we just don't think very creatively, I don't think sometimes. Or for example, in the North End, I mean, we, we um, used eminent domain to take a whole bunch of nice housing out of that north end development, affordable housing, mm. nice houses. Um, and then there was also this um, steel and pipe had their big um, warehouse. Why couldn't we have done something creative with that building? Right now it's just a cookie cutter area that you see every other place in every town. So there's nothing unique. There's no draw for us basically. Yeah, there's some real strong economic forces making it hard to build uh, affordable housing. Yeah. Is that kind of a good, yeah. fair way to yeah. summarize? Yeah, well, and, and you know, even in the North End development, it was first sold, part of the piece, one of the pieces that was supposed to be a senior living unit. It's not there. Yeah. So, I mean, that was the um, promise, and then the promise was broken, yeah. basically. Do you think it's as simple as a um, as political will? Just telling uh, developers that we're not interested in. Well, I I think it I think it's also tied to um, our comprehensive land use plan and our zoning regulations. Don't have a lot of teeth in them sometimes. They're more often guidelines or suggestions. So then, as planning board members turn over or city commissioners turn over, then the point of view or the commitment to doing things changes as, as, as those people turn over in those positions because our documents aren't very specific sometimes. Yeah. You know, one of the big, one of the big barriers, it seems to me, um, it, to making, you know, progress on this issue and in, in sort of influencing our elected officials, um, you know, into making you know, different decisions on development is the fact that these issues are, they're not like that straightforward, right? It's not, uh, like you have to be a, a, a pretty sufficiently educated uh, citizen to know what the impact of this new development is going to be like on the, on the community, right? And whether or not, it, or, or how, or to what extent it fits into the, um, what is it, the community, Plan the comprehensive land. Use uh, the compre yeah, yeah, the comprehensive plan, you, which you have to know what the comprehensive plan is, and that's a several hundred page document, if I remember right. Yeah, like, it that's is. A, that's a it is. that's a big one, and so and there, and there are other plans that support it. I mean, there's the 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 transit plan and and the parks plan. I mean, there are all these other documents that feed into that that you have to keep in mind when you think about the land use plan because a lot of things impact land use. Right, right. And so I guess I guess the, the direction that I'm going with this point is that some of the people who are, a lot of the people who are most impacted 
by these new developments are also the people who are probably the least likely or even capable of advocating for or against them. So who are, you know, like how, do, how does the community overcome that problem and, or how have we been trying to address that, that problem? Well, the way, the, way, the way it's happened is that, you know, there's certain advocacy groups that, that have um, lobbied for or against certain things. Um, you know, historically, the League of Women Voters um, has done that um, pretty strongly. The Preservation Alliance has done that, but theirs has been also, you know, more narrowly focused around um, historic properties. Um, but then kind of indirectly then they've had a an influence then um, on other things associated with that. So it's those kind of, or, or neighborhoods, neighborhood associations that get organized. I mean, South Manhattan Neighborhood Association has been, you know, active on some issues before. Um, so it's, it's those advocacy groups that have really um, tried to organize others in the community to, to do something, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you, um, and related to that, this, this is sort of a theme that, that comes up in our conversations as well, is the extent to which, you know, so, so you mentioned organizing, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, getting different, you know, community groups, um, you know, citizen advocates, community leaders kind of together uh, advocating around a certain issue. Um, one, of the, one of the things that, that has come up a, a, a few times now is the idea that it's really hard to do that in, in Manhattan. Do you agree with that? Like, is it, is it something that's unique to Manhattan? Um, or is, has this, has, have you seen sort of fluctuations in how hard or difficult it's been to, to organize in Manhattan? Um, I don't think it's hard to necessarily, you, you can get a group of people together, like-minded people together that wanna do something about an issue. The hard part comes in um, who's going to be brave enough to carry the message sometimes. So they always kind of want to push somebody else. I mean, the idea is, yeah, we support that position, but we're too afraid to say something. So who's going to say it? Who's going to deliver the message, basically? Mm -hmm. um, so um, that, I think, is, is, is the issue. Mm -hmm. So people will you know, tell you privately or they'll go to meetings, but they don't want to be the one to deliver the message, basically. Yeah. Because, and, and for a variety of reasons, you know, they may be a, a small business person, and if it's something that, um, you know, the chamber supports, then they don't want to be, you know, at cross-purposes with the chamber. If they're, if they're with a nonprofit organization, they are concerned that they may lose donations if they're, you know. So, you know, so yes and no. I mean, you know, um, yeah. Yes and no. Yeah, um, and and related to that is also the idea that um, not just you know you know people who want to it's not just difficult for people uh, or challenging for people who want to organize around an issue, um, but also for different organizations around town, like you mentioned, to um, coalesce. Mm -hmm. Right, form coalitions to address issues. What are the sort of the forces that make coalitions difficult? 
If the, well, first of all, I, I suppose I could say, do you think do you think our coalitions are effective, and why or why not? Well, I think what you see is kind of redundancy. The same people that are involved with one organization are the same people that are involved with another. So it's a it's 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 the same not small group of people, but it tends to be the same people involved, but just through a different avenue. Mm -hmm. um, so I mean, you know. People that are involved with Manhattan Alliance for Peace and Justice are often, you know, involved with the League of Women Voters or, you know, I mean, so there's there's that overlap, basically. So it's kind of the same, same faces. Um, and, but, you know, the other part of this, too, is that um, when it's the same people over and over again, then are you viewed as having any credibility or are you just the same old agitators that are always agitating around something, basically, too? Um, and then when you try and, and, I mean, for example, the people that are struggling the most in the community, when you want to give them a voice, they don't have time to go to a city commission meeting. Um, you know, they're working two or three jobs or they're you know they have kids that need childcare. I mean, so how do you how do you um how do you involve them in the process basically? And then how do you then how how do you put a a face to the situation then for the policymakers? Now I know, you know, I I was the project manager on the community needs assessment that was done in um twenty fifteen and when I made presentations um around the community of the results of that assessment. There are a couple of elected officials that, that poo-pooed it as um, not believing that the results of that were meaningful. Why? Well, because, you know, couldn't, well, the, the, the biggest one was on the um, um, number of people that said they had either experienced or witnessed um, discrimination because of being um, LGBT. And it was like, oh, well, you know, all the people that responded to that could have all been talking about one person, that, the same person. All 17% of them saw the same instance of discrimination? I don't think so. But it was kind of rejecting the notion that that data had any validity, basically. So, mm. so I don't know. Which makes, which makes me curious. To what extent do you think our policy decisions are evidence-based? In Manhattan, depends on who you talk to. So yeah. some some elected officials are persuaded by that. Others, it's their. Others are not. Recent discussion about um, funding of the uh, family planning clinic at the health department. Perfect example of that. Um, ample evidence that providing funding for family planning services saves money in the long run, but least two commissioners that had no impact yeah so don't confuse me with the facts I guess right right so um, and now we're off housing again anyway well well we are but we're not so um, because it, there's if, if you're gonna do something about housing um, it's in Manhattan one of the, one of the best ways to do that is through at the city level Right. Uh, so we, we've been talking about, um, you know, uh, you know, developers, uh, you know, 
you know, giving proposals to the city commission and it's ultimately a city level decision, mm -hmm. you know, that, that okays that new development or doesn't okay that development. And then you could say, well, what impacts this, the commissioner's dis decision? And a lot of times it's organizing, right? It's like, what's the, well, not necessarily what, what's the public opinion, on that, because I don't think you know, I, I'm not aware of any sort of public opinion polling uh, in Manhattan uh, or anything close to it. But um, it's people, you know, it's people who are organizing. It's organizations who are organizing and coalescing to, you know, make progress on different on different issues. And so I think I think it's all very uh, intimately uh, related and and part of this discussion. Well, and, you know, when you get back to the issue of planning, for example, um, I'm on the planning board, on the Manhattan Urban Area Planning Board, and at our last meeting, um, we were asked to approve um, a modification for the planned unit development um, out on Highway 24 um, in the area called Heritage South, uh, which is that... Um, commercial business district just east of the car dealership out there. Um, and there used to be a, a restaurant there called Ramblers that closed. And a for-profit childcare business wanted to, wants to go into that, was asking for that PUD to be amended because the zoning didn't allow for a childcare center. Mm. Um, and going to be 80 to 90 slots for children, which child care is a need here, but we also know that um, there is a lack of child care for low-income people in this community. So here was a situation where, again, child care slots were going to be provided, but only for those people that it could afford to pay for it. Um, and you know, my way of thinking, and in fact, I, I, I asked the question, um, and there was no reason to not approve the amendment to the PUD, but, but my question to the developer that was working with the company that was going to put it in was, gee, or I guess my comment, you know, it would be nice if you could think of um, a way to provide some income-based slots and gee, wouldn't that be an, a, a good way to use some economic development fund money? Mm -hmm. <laughs> in terms, I, I just, I wish we could think a little more creatively when we do things instead of just the standard standard way of going about things. Right. Um, so it's those kind of, you know... Isn't it, isn't it sort of like, it's being creative, but it's also, it, you tell me if, 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 I'm, if I'm on here, but the difference between some of these decisions is also sort of I, I see issues of social justice kind of sure, wrapped up in definitely, these definitely. big time right yeah. it's like yeah being creative um, also correlates quite a bit with you know how does this benefit the you know like the, the vulnerable people in yeah. the community right and and you know and maybe I'm just trying to be politically correct by saying creative because again, the you know that situation was, you know, what would, why would they think that they needed to think about low-income families 
in terms of what they were doing because it was a private business, basically. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you know, they saw an opportunity that there was a need in the community for childcare, but what was there to help them know that affordable childcare is the issue? Mm. So how 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 do we? And at the planning board level, that certainly, in terms of the scope of what we're supposed to do, didn't necessarily. That's not where you have that discussion. Also. I made the comment, but it, it doesn't carry any weight at the planning board level because nothing in our documents give us any weight to do anything about that. But what about, um, I do recall a section in that uh, comprehensive plan um, on health, right? Like mm -hmm. building essentially a, a, a few pages on, you know, how being aware there weren't any sort of specific you know, steps to be taken, but just sort of, look, let's just be aware of how new developments are going to impact people's health, like the walkability of neighborhoods, access to, you know, services and these kinds of things. And it sounds like, uh, from what I'm hearing from you and, and a lot of other people, that that just doesn't really get factored in. Well, the language is, that's in there, though, is not a requirement. Right. So... You know, as planning board members, we can always raise the issues that, you know, in terms of, well, for example, you know, you look at the patchwork of sidewalks in this community, that, that always depended on the philosophy of the planning board members at any one time. Sometimes there'd be planning board members that would require sidewalks on both sides of the street, and then planning board turnover, and then suddenly, we didn't require sidewalks or sidewalks on one side of the street. Mm. You know, that's why you see sidewalks to nowhere around here sometimes. There's no connectivity or there's sidewalk on one side and then you have to cross the other side to get to the sidewalk. So it was that lack of consistency because the language was soft right. on those types of things. And, you know, and right now, um, when, things become, when things come before the planning board, we're generally pretty good about looking about, you know, um, you know, what does this, you know, look like in terms of, you know, bikeability and walkability and connectivity mm -hmm. um, between neighborhoods and, and access? Um, but that's because we all have that mentality at this point. Mm -hmm. But it's, and, and so that's it. Developers know then that when they come to us, that'll be a question. So then they try to address it because they don't want something to get rejected because right. of that issue right. basically. Well that's encouraging. So yeah. The and, other and, and the other the other point too is is city staff, the planning staff, um, is sensitive to it too. And and that helps because developers have those meetings with staff before those proposals come to us and, and so city staff kind of says, well this is what planning board members are interested in and are gonna want to see basically. Mm -hmm. So so again that professional staff can have a lot of influence in terms of what comes forward. Right. I know uh, from looking at the, our health department's um, new strategic plan um, health in all policies is a um, is a is a pretty big part of that and kind of made me got me starting to think about 
the extent to which you know representatives from you know public health whether it's the department or other areas of town and i consider you you know somebody who works in public health uh, are represented in these kinds of decisions and so um, so i'm glad that that there is some public health representation on those committees well and and, and on the planning board in particular um phil anderson um mm -hmm. he's he's very sensitive to those issues and then um john ball actually is chair of the social services advisory board and so he interjects regarding issues that he sees um because of his knowledge about what's he has a he has a different knowledge about the social service agencies than like i do basically so mm -hmm. i do think that we have a pretty good um voice when it comes to raising those issues but right. again some, sometimes we're limited by by the planning documents in terms right. of but but at least if we talk about it maybe in the future when it's time to update that land use plan again then maybe some changes will happen in that plan and things that are just guidelines or suggestions might become requirements so so uh so one one strategy uh, for making these kinds of decisions could be to say, well, let's look at how this is going to impact uh, health, and there would be a number of different people in town who would, you know, value that kind of strategy. Um, but then there's a lot of other people who would say, well, how does this make economic sense? Or in people who, of course, are interested in both. But how do you um, it, at some point, and I'm sure it's happened you know, many times already, you get to the point where um, you have to make the, the argument that taking care of poor people makes economic sense. Like, how do you make that? First of all, I mean, is, has that been your experience? And, and how do you sort of make that argument? It, does that argument exist? Well, for some of us, it does. <laughs> um, but you know, <clears throat> low-income people are just, um, to a certain degree, invisible here, and um, you know, we we find ways to support them, um, but we're not finding ways to lift them up out of poverty, I guess. And, um, you know, and it's so multi-layered. Mm -hmm. um, I, mean, I mean, locally, you know, we do what we can, but then, you know, I mean, and I don't have to tell you the, 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 debacle at the state level here in terms of and then Trump's bu budget proposal yesterday is just um, you know if there's a um, um, marginalized group he's going after it at this point so um, and and for our community um, I mean the, all those things combined have just made it harder basically and then in terms of I mean and and, and it's not to say our community is not generous when it comes to um, supporting our social service agencies through their donations, but um, the need is increasing. It's not getting any less. I know um, Shepherd's Crossing, which really just provides help with, um, you know, rent and those type of things. I mean, the amount that they have given out so far this year is 
staggering in yeah, terms record of, levels I, yeah from yeah, what I heard. yeah it's it's um yeah it's just um and then um you know the bread basket in fact the at the senior center which which is where i work part-time um, we've been approached by harvesters um harvesters there are um what are called um, commodity f commodities for seniors, food boxes that are available. Um, there's um, an opportunity to increase the number that are distributed here in um, Manhattan Riley County. And so we've been approached at the Senior Center about doing that. So this will then supplement what the breadbasket is already doing. And you know, even at the Senior Center, um, the number of senior, homeless seniors that we're seeing um, seems to be increasing. And then just the number of seniors that come in for our noon meal um, is increasing too. And um, it's concerning. So it's, yeah. just, it's, it's concerning. Yeah, I mean, I understand that's a pretty tough question uh, to ask, but you know, th there are some examples of, um, you know, like how it does make economic sense to invest in, you know, whatever you want to call it, social safety net or, you know, getting people out of poverty. And you just look at uh, homelessness, right? It's, it's, it's cheaper to house someone sure. who is homeless, you know, housing first um, and, you know, rehabilitate whatever you want to call it than it is to, you know, Ex leave them homeless and expect them to just pull themselves out them themselves, right? The the strain that it puts on the, sure, the but, healthcare system. But but it's also, I would step that back. Another piece is if they were working at jobs where they were paid a good wage. <laughs> I mean, you you can provide them housing, but if they don't have the economic security to pay the bills, yeah. I mean, you know, where does it start basically with that? Right. So. Um, um. Yeah, and I know this sounds, you know, kind of callous to think about the issue in in economic terms, but but it is, but it it is. economics. It is economics, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's all kinds of, you know, good, strong, ethical arguments that not many people would dispute. But all of a sudden, when you start talking about in economic terms, it's I don't know. I don't see why why this is a good investment, and so that's something that's been really interesting to me. Like, how do you you know how do you have that conversation? Like, what is what are the best arguments to come out of that? I don't think we're going to be able to to touch on that today because uh, I got to get going. Um, but is there anything else you want to say before we wrap it up? Well, only that you know, all these issues are so interrelated mm. and they're complex, um, and you know, in my view, it's just. Sometimes you have to start someplace, and and um, and then you also just have to persist. So um, the other piece, though, too, is um, bringing other people along, so that um, those of us that have been doing it for a while, when we get tired, there are other people to follow, basically mm -hmm. that'll that'll do the work too. So yeah. yeah.